Guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. It feels weird to say it, but this month I will be leaving a job that I've held for nearly a decade. It's the first job that I got when I was still fresh out of college and, and still of a mind to take a shot of Jameson before a shift, and it remains, several years and part-time jobs later, the only one that ever made any discernible use of my English degree. I've been a tutor in the English department at Miami-Dade College, working mainly in the speech lab, counseling students on how to craft their outlines and deliver their speeches for about seven years now. Miami-Dade College is one of the biggest institutions in Miami, and I've, I've been coy about ever mentioning it outright in either the podcast or the blog, because even though it's never paid very much money, I've always wanted to hang on to it. This tutoring job is so entrenched in bureaucracy that it's, it's, like, it's prodigiously safe. And we're going to get into the reasons that that safety is a problem in a minute, but the specific reason that I'm leaving Dade is because everybody in the tutoring center has been working remotely for the past year of the pandemic, and things have been going smoothly the entire time. But now our superiors want everybody back on campus, which is some 20 miles from my apartment, and it's just not worth it for me anymore. Especially now that I've got this bartending gig right near my apartment, but there are other reasons that I'm leaving the college, which mainly have to do with the fact that Miami-Dade College, like probably any other college, is an exploitative money-grubbing monster. You might be surprised to know, for instance, that several part-time professors working their maximum permissible class load each semester are on government assistance. And that's actually not unique to Miami-Dade College, as we'll soon find out. But it's critical here because I, I work mostly with those part-time professors. And that one simple fact, the fact that part-time professors don't get paid enough money to eat three meals a day and to have health insurance and pay rent, that creates a cascade of consequences that, that make the task of tutoring students basically hopeless. But at the same time, Miami-Dade College, for all of its faults, is a saving grace of the working class. It hosts 100,000 students across several campuses, plus online courses that attract students from all over the world, making it, I think, the largest college in America. Classes are fairly cheap, and all you need in order to take a class is a high school diploma and green American currency. It's affordable, it's ubiquitous, it's diverse in clientele and in faculty and in curricula. It is inevitable. However, the enormity of the college works simultaneously to its betterment and to its detriment. So let's get into it. First of all, the teachers are poor. I know that the word poor has dark connotations, and that even if we are studious and compassionate and worldly, even if we understand the iniquities of capitalism and whatever, and how virtually nobody's poverty is a result of their own doing, there is something about the word poor that conjures images, for most people, of squalor, of ceiling panels, sagging down over kitchen tables of exposed wiring and asbestos of an inability to afford hygiene. I had a really cool professor in my junior year of college named Anna Lushinska, and she told us at the end of the semester that we could write our term paper about any topic we wanted, so long as, as we looked at that topic through the, through the lens of theories we had learned in class. 
And so I wrote about a certain movie studio. You probably you probably know of New Line Cinema, or at least you probably know their logo. Between like 2004 and 2010, New Line Cinema released a slate of slasher movie remakes. Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which, which are the vehicles for three major horror movie icons, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, and Leatherface. In all three of those remakes, New Line Cinema tried to, to expand on the mythology of these pop culture icons. It tried to make these serial killers like more gritty and terrifying. And the one thing that this New Line Cinema slate of remakes added to each character's mythology in order to make them more gritty and terrifying was to make them poor to show us the squalor of their living quarters. In their new version of Friday the 13th, we see Jason's squalid shack, we see Freddy Krueger's squalid boiler room chambers, and we see the squalid township in which Leatherface lives. We get close-ups of their bad teeth, their clothing made stiff with sweat and dirt and blood and piss. New Line Cinema, a major corporation that is very practiced at releasing horror movies that check the boxes on how to scare the American public, they know that if you want your audience to fear a character, all you've got to do is make that character poor. Now, what is, what is poor? The U.S. Census Bureau determines a household's poverty by using a, a set dollar amount for what it costs to maintain a person's basic needs over the course of a year, to give them food and water and, and shelter. I can't find what that num what that exact number is, but it, it appears to be a bare minimum of like $6,000, $500 a month. And I deduce that number from an example that they have on their website. Here's, here's that example. Let's say there's a household with five occupants, two children, two parents, and a great aunt. The children generate no income. The parents generate $11,000 each, and the great aunt contributes 10 grand. The United States Census says that since it costs roughly $6,000 minimum to maintain a person for a year, this household's poverty line would be if they earned less than $30,000. Five occupants times $6,000 per year equals 30 grand. And since this household earns $32,000, they are technically above the poverty line. Have you ever had a dream that, that you, um, you had, you, you, you could, you do, you, you want, you, you could do so, you, you do, you could, you, you want, you want him to do you so much you could do anything? Now that, of course, is just the math of the Census Bureau. But if, in reality, you live in a small house with five people, subsisting on $32,000 a year, you know that you are poor. Maybe you say broke instead of poor, but it's the same thing. It means that you live in a state of constant stress and worry, because yes, Maybe you've, you've got just enough money to meet your needs. You can eat and you've got shelter and all that, but that census figure of $6,000 per year that a person needs in order to survive, that doesn't factor in the flat tire that you have to replace each year, or maybe the two flat tires, or the dude who's going to charge you $120 to fix your air conditioner, shit like that. But then there, there's other factors here. Tressie McMillan Cotton talks in her essay collection Thick about how poverty can be different based on your cultural signifiers. Like maybe, for instance, you, you are yourself an adjunct professor earning $28,000 a year. You live in Little Havana, you carry a faux leather messenger bag to a cheap coffee shop each morning, your clothes might be wrinkled, but they don't have stains, and yes, you order the cheapest drink on the menu each day, no one has any illusions that you're, you know, a well-to-do person, but then you sit down, you open up a stack of papers, 
and you start doing what looks like the very intellectually stimulating work of grading papers. You are signifying to the room that you are a kind of intellectual authority. Your clothes don't have designer labels, and yes, you're, you're a bit disheveled, but you are focused, you're clean, you are conspicuously literate. You just happen to be earning very little money for your otherwise respectable line of work. Now let's say, on the other hand, you're a mechanic, earning the same amount of money as, as that professor, 28 grand, but every day when you pop into this coffee shop, you're wearing a jumpsuit with a few faint oil and grease stains on it. Your hands are thick and the undersides of your fingernails, even though they're perfectly clean, they're just like stained, a kind of constant grimy black. You get the cheapest drink on the menu and then you sit down and you just sip it. You don't read anything, you don't listen to music, you don't take calls. Maybe, maybe you strike up conversation with strangers. Do you look like somebody whose job doesn't require a college education? And in certain settings, you will be treated like a less dignified citizen because of that. I mean, after all, which of these two people that I'm describing do you think will get the quickest seat at a restaurant? Which do you think will be accorded the most patient explanation of procedures at a government office? Anyway, that's a, that's a long way toward telling you that these part-time professors might not look poor, and according to the U.S. Census Bureau, they might not be poor. But the fact of the matter is that they generate more anxiety than income. A 2020 survey by the American Federation of Teachers showed that a quarter of part-time professors rely on government assistance, earning less than $26,000 a year. And you might say, well, if it's part-time work, why not just do, why not just be a part-time professor in the evenings and maybe teach at a high school or, or something during the day, you know, during the school year? Part-time professors are actually working full-time hours when you factor in commute and the grading of papers to say nothing of meetings that they attend. In other words, a part-time professor doesn't actually have time for another job because the only thing the part-time label means is that they aren't eligible for benefits. It is still expected of them to work at least 40 hours a week. And so here, in a trickling series of events, is what happens to a college when the overwhelming majority of professors are overworked and financially exploited. Let's say you're a part-time professor, also called an adjunct professor. You teach a course in, let's say, communications. In order to just barely scrape by financially, you've got to teach the maximum number of courses that the college will allow you to teach. Let's say this is five classes, and each one pays $2,000. So you will teach five classes this semester in exchange for $10,000. If there are 30 students in each of your classes, that means that you are teaching 150 students per semester. So now, as an adjunct, you've got to teach five classes in order to scrape by. But let's temper our expectations here. No single campus offers all five of those classes, which means that you're probably going to have to move from one campus to another in order to tackle just a day's classes. You might even have to go back and forth between two campuses several times a day. Now let's say that this regimen entails a 30-minute commute in the middle of the afternoon. 30 minutes bare minimum. But traffic varies. So the simple matter now of even getting to your class is a distracting source of anxiety. Just yet another thing to worry about. And something about the financing at date, I never could wrap my head around it, but if a professor can't make it to class, there needs to be a substitute teacher. The substitute obviously 
is never a willing colleague in the department because every other faculty member is overworked with their own classes. The substitute teacher is usually an administrator who, who, who doesn't know the curriculum. They can't execute a lesson. It's like high school. The administrator goes in, hits play on a DVD, and stands by to make sure that the adults in the room are paying attention. I personally have had to substitute a few classes while working at Dade, and the students are always pissed because they all commute to class. There are no there are no dorms anywhere. And some of them drive to campus from way distant parts of town. And you can explain it however you like. There is no way of persuading a 32-year-old single parent who lives, you know, 20 miles from campus that the reason she's here in this classroom without a real professor at 6 p.m. on a Wednesday night you know, paying $30 an hour for childcare is because it's an integral part of her education. And the reason that you cannot persuade her of that is because it's fucking bullshit. And everybody, every single person involved from the department chair to the substitute to the professor herself to the president of the college, everybody knows that this is bullshit. But they do it because it's part of the charade. It's part of how the dollars flow. Mentally and emotionally, you the adjunct professor, are absolutely stretched to capacity. You're working 50 or 60 hours a week in the beginning of the semester. And why? Because you're a person of integrity. You like what you do. You're trying to really step up to the plate and be a solid teacher for your students. And now the first big assignment of the semester comes up. All of your students are going to write a 10-page paper about... This is a communications class, so let's say it's going to be about... the nuances of nonverbal communication. Well. 10 pages per student, at 150 students, that's 1,500 pages. You have to read and grade 1,500 pages of college writing. And you've got to do that in your spare time, the very little that you have in your life. Which is fucking impossible. That's stupid. And then you realize this is in your hands. You are the professor. You make the assignment. So you go to the chair of your department and you say, hey, I'm thinking of making that 10-page assignment into an eight-page assignment. And you find that the chair, you know, the chair is busy. She's, she's just as overworked as you are, as overworked as everybody is. She doesn't give a fuck what you do, so long as you're not violating any rules. And so you lower your standards. That big assignment won't be 10 pages anymore. It'll be eight pages. But that's actually still a fuck ton of pages. You implement this new rule in the following semester, and you find that you're just as stressed out trying to read a thousand pages as you were trying to read 1,500 pages. So maybe, you know, Nobody's watching. Your, your supervisors are too busy to notice, so fuck it. The, fuck it. The assignment is going to be two pages. The term paper, it's a two-page paper about nonverbal communication. Sure, two pages. And then the next semester comes and you realize how much more relaxed you are now that you've reduced that assignment to two pages. And you, you kind of laugh at yourself when you look back and you think, was I really burning myself out and hurting my marriage and losing sleep for ten grand a semester? So, fuck it. Those four two-page papers you were assigning, now it's three papers. Or fuck it, no, it's two. The entire grade for the class will be predicated on a pair of two-page papers. And the rest of everyone's grade will, will depend on attendance. Let them know. Let the students know. 40% of their grade is attendance. 30% of their grade is, is a, is a two-page paper, the, you know, at the midterm. And then 30% of their grade is a two-page paper for the final. Easy peasy. Everybody wins. Okay, there's actually an issue here. Apparently a student can't really explore complicated issues in just a double-spaced two-page paper. So, I mean, you can't just bump it back up to five or eight pages again because you won't have a life, so... 
All right, look, ra all right, ra rather than writing about the nuances of nonverbal communication, because that's too intricate, you can't really talk about it in two pages, they can do two pages about texting and driving. Texting and dr the hazards of texting and driving. And dude, this is a huge part of why I quit, is these fucking dumbass assignments. Obviously, there's the practical issue of driving all the way to campus. That's what's really compelling me to finally pull the trigger and walk away. But the most aggravating part of my job over the past three years, and I swear it's been getting worse for each of my seven years at this tutoring center, is that I'm helping students write two-page outlines for a quote-unquote informative speech about why it's important to eat vegetables, about why you shouldn't text and drive, which is a ridiculous assignment for a college-level course. These students aren't learning shit. Not only that, the overwhelming majority of students that I tutor, when I ask them for the name of their professor, they don't know it. Because the professor walks in, says some cursory things, walks them through a PowerPoint, dismisses them with vague instructions for their assignment, and then everybody's off on their own. The students do their assignment, they get a good grade or a bad grade that they don't understand, the instructions for each successive assignment become increasingly vague, so that the, the professor has a wider berth for giving an arbitrarily passing or failing grade, and the student basically just shoots in the dark, does the laziest, quickest job that they can, and then at the end of the semester, remarkably, virtually every student passes, because it would reflect poorly on the professor and on the college if the failure rate were so high. If the failure rate were as high, frankly, as it should be. Not because the students are performing poorly, but because the corporate apparatus and exploitation of adjunct professors have rendered these students' education essentially useless. As I said earlier, though, Miami-Dade College is a godsend because it gives a college education to people who otherwise would not be able to afford it. It helps disenfranchised or poverty-stricken communities lift themselves out from that quagmire of generational poverty and get the certificates that will open the door to them finding good work. But by turning their college into a kind of academic sweatshop with overworked part-time professors, the quality of that education plummets. The education doesn't end up being meaningless. My language earlier was a little bit dramatic because it really is a valuable kind of intellectual workout for a student to have to routinely sit down and and work toward the completion of even vague and meandering assignments, like, like a five-minute persuasive speech about why you shouldn't text and drive, or why you should eat vegetables, or why LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time. All of which, I swear to God, are speeches I have heard so often, I could almost recite them myself. Did you know that LeBron James holds the record for most points scored in the playoffs? Because I, someone who can scarcely tell the difference between a basketball and a fish, I know that fact very well. Did you know that by the year 2050, the weight of plastic in the ocean will exceed the weight of those fish that LeBron keeps three-pointing? Well, I know it because I've heard it a thousand times. One of my superiors in the department, a woman with a master's degree and a thorough, brilliant, patient demeanor, as when, when she gets to perform as the instructor that she was promised she could be 15 years ago and then was never actually given the opportunity to become, she, she's an advisor now, and when enrollment dried up, at the beginning of the pandemic, she, among other advisors, was tasked with calling, individually, every student who had not re-enrolled and offering those students a buy one, get one class. Enroll in one class and get a second class for free. She had become a telemarketer, which is just fucking disgraceful, and yet, this is the kind of shit that makes a superpower of an institution. It makes sure that if students aren't getting what you would call a solid education, they are getting that flaccid sheet of paper that grants them access to a host of low-paying jobs that inexplicably require that kind of certification, a college degree. Anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bag of worms. With mixed emotions, I'm leaving Miami-Dade College behind, and part of the emotional mixture stems 
from something I don't really like to acknowledge. Remember the thing I was talking about in the beginning, the signifying status among poor people and how the world looks differently at a professor who's earning $28,000 than a mechanic who's earning $28,000? Well, being able to tell other people while I'm wearing my ratty clothes that I work in a tutoring center at Miami Dade College along with whichever service job I, I, I have at the time, to be able to say that to them and also to myself, I feel like it confers a kind of status on me, and it makes me feel a little bit better about where I have found myself. Not that I feel I'm a failure in life to be working in hospitality, but I do catch myself saying things in my head like, oh, I'm just a bartender, or I'm just a server. Even though some of my closest friends and are, are bartenders and servers, and I respect them all, so why do I take that tone with myself? I, I really don't understand. Like, does it reflect an unconscious prejudice against blue-collar workers, like the sort the sort of thing that New Line Cinema exploits with their slasher movie remakes? Or is it something to do with the expectations I have of myself? That too is another soggy bag of worms. For the foreseeable future, though, I will be working at the bar alone, and for a few weeks at least, I will be there only part-time so that I can focus on the blog and on the podcast and, and line up a solid slate of material. I'll be reading more widely than usual, I'll be watching more movies, venturing deeper into my current pet projects of, of learning how to draw little comics and, and all this other shit. The next few months in both their study and financial struggle and, and maybe some degree of self Reinvention, they will be a kind of education, I guess. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. And if you like the show and plan on sticking around, you'll be hearing a lot more of it in weeks to come, since for at least a while, I'm going to be working on the podcast as a kind of part-time job. And if you'd like to support the show and me in that respect, you can check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thousandmovieproject, where there are four tiers of rewards, or if you'd like a free way to support the show, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcast and leave a favorable review. I just saw there's like 34 positive reviews, and each one bolsters our standing in the charts and helps to attract more listeners. It bolsters visibility. So that would be a tremendous help. And if you point me toward your positive review, I'll be sure to send you one of the rewards that you might otherwise get for becoming a Patreon donor. Yes, if you leave a positive review for Thousand Movie Project Podcasts on iTunes, send it my way through Instagram or the website, and I will send you a handwritten doodlesome thank you note. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon.